Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. The politics of identity have played center stage in many political debates in the last few years and is often seen somewhat pejoratively as an epiphenomenal manifestation of the dynamics of capitalism. Some scholars, however, see this as a reductive mistake, not just for any attempt to organize against capitalism, but also as part of a mistaken understanding of what identity is. This is one of the animating ideas of my guest today, Ani Maitra, here to discuss his new book, Identity, Mediation, and the Cunning of Capital, from Northwestern University Press in 2020. Utilizing the insights of philosophy, psychoanalysis, and critical theory, the book looks at radio transmissions and films dispersed through the Algerian Revolution and its aftermath. It examines experimental prose and imagery around Asian American identity produced by neoliberal academic institutions, and it looks at the orientations on display at an LGBTQ film festival in an India struggling to join the world market, while still maintaining its own distinct identity. The book is a theoretically informed world tour that scours the globe in search of the various contexts that mediate and constitute us, and the contradictory identities that emerge. Annie Maitra is an associate professor of film and media studies at Colgate University. He received his PhD at Brown University and is the author of a number of book chapters and articles. Annie Maitra, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here and to be in conversation with you. Yeah. uh, So first question we always like to ask our guests is uh, if you could introduce yourself and maybe tell us a bit about your background and what your research tends to focus on. Sure. Uh, So I am an associate professor of global film and media at uh, Colgate University in Hamilton, New York. Uh, And my teaching and research interests um, span the fields of post-colonial and diasporic media cultures and gender and sexuality studies. Um, uh, So my first book um, uh, looks at the uh, sort of production of identity politics in a global frame um, and looking at the relationship between media and identity or what I call a kind of uh, uh, politics of mediation um, that capitalism has put into place um, and how that impacts identity production. Um, And I'm also interested in looking at uh, the role of aesthetics uh, in not just in the context of um, artistic production or artistic reception, uh, but uh, the impact of aesthetics on sort of cultures of media reception and how that shapes um, identity and uh, identitarian attachments. So that's my uh, work in a nutshell. Excellent. So to kick things off, the book starts by looking at a situation that developed in 2017 around Donna Schutz's oil painting, Open Casket, which depicted the mangled face of Emmett Till. The painting received some critical protest and 
became the centerpiece of a series of debates across a number of platforms. But what really seems to drive your interest in the piece is how these various forms of expression, protest, and engagement are themselves shaped or, to borrow your term, mediated uh, by the various contexts they inhabit, whether it's the art piece at the museum, the protest video on Facebook, or the various analyses of the debate that showed up in academic journals that are produced by neoliberal academic institutions. So can you unpack how this series of debates was shaped by the locations in which it appeared and how this contextual mediation can help complicate our understanding of the art piece and its responses? Yeah, so uh, the context of mediation um, or uh, what I see as the kind of multiple mediations shaping any instance of mediation um, is is sort of fundamental to my reading of the protests uh, and the overall argument of the book. Uh, So as you noted, uh, the protests led by African-American artist Parker Bright uh, against uh, the painting Open Casket produced a range of responses. Um, On the one hand, a number of artists, activists, and cultural critics uh, supported Bright uh, and his position uh, that this abstract painting uh, evoking uh, the kind of very well-known iconic photograph uh, of uh, the lynched African-American teenager Emmett Till uh, commodified black suffering um, for uh, the enjoyment of a kind of wealthy uh, a group of white patrons um, at, at the Whitney Museum. Um, so to these uh, protesters, uh, Parker Bright's symbolic gesture of guarding the painting, uh, protecting a black identity, uh, was an apt uh, and necessary identitarian response. Um, On the other hand, though, um, other activists and artists uh, saw Bright's gesture as an act of censorship, um, as being anti-art. And so from this uh, aesthetic and um, anti-essentialist perspective, um, the power of the painting lay in its ability to uh, move us toward uh, an anti-racist consciousness that is beyond identity politics. In my argument, uh, however, uh, both the pro and the anti-identitarian positions in this controversy uh, have something in common. Um, I argue that they both ignore uh, the, what I'm calling the kind of multiply mediated nature of uh, blackness or identity politics more broadly, and the multiply mediated context of minority identity production. Uh, So if you return to the scene of uh, protests against open casket, um, we'll note that there are at least three levels or kinds of mediation behind the production of blackness. Um, First, there's the painting itself uh, as an aesthetic medium. Um, It's abstract representation of blackness that that we might say uh, sort of both attracts uh, and repels the black uh, protester. Uh, uh, Second, there is the famous photograph uh, of Emmett Till that the painting recalls, uh, the painting that, uh, as I noted, has this kind of iconic significance um, for African-Americans who have been at once included and marginalized in the U.S. uh, by by racialized capitalism in the U.S. Um, Third, uh, there are other mediating factors beyond the painting or the photograph. Uh, We might think of the Whitney as one such uh, uh, mediating space, a predominantly white exhibition space, um, where Black uh, protesters are reacting to the painting 
uh, but not in isolation, right? But in relation to the black and white bodies um, strolling around the exhibition space. So that's that's a kind of third level of mediation that we can think about in this scene. And finally, uh, viewers, as well as Parker Bright himself, uh, are live streaming the protest, uh, whether it's through Facebook Live or other social media platforms, um, so that Bright's own performance um, of blackness or black difference um, enters uh, the digital space and digital economy, uh, an economy of what uh, uh, Jody Dean calls uh, communicative capitalism, um, uh, this kind of capitalism or virtual capitalism or capitalistic space where uh, that allows Bright to acquire a certain amount of value, uh, uh, circulation value, um, as a Black artist uh, through digital visibility. Uh, so essentially, uh, once we pause to note the multiple mediations shaping uh, the production of Blackness in this scene of protest, uh, we have to move beyond the opposition between pro-identity and anti-identity. Now, while open casket, the open casket controversy might seem exceptional, uh, my book argues that the controversy, in fact, brings, to, brings into view uh, uh, geopolitically specific uh, and uh, uh, overlapping processes of mediation uh, that are always at work in minority identity production. Um, so the various case studies in the book uh, attend to other geo geopolitically specific examples of this uh, kind of hyper-mediated nature of identity politics. At the center of your book is the idea that people's identities under capitalism are split in a way that parallels Marx's analysis of split commodities. You write, quote, within a specific socio-political context of minoritization, global capitalism mediates identity so that the latter can be contained and regulated by the hierarchical split between use value and exchange value, shuttling between marginality and inclusion, resistance and conformity. This split within value nurtures capitalism, but it also produces in identity an exceptional and yet normalized irreconcilability. So can you unpack this split for us? Yeah, so... By identity, I should I should probably clarify that uh, what I'm referring to is what the uh, economist and cultural critic um, Amartya Sen um, calls uh, a minoritizing constraint. Right. So identity here is born from the experience of being socially marginalized and constrained, uh, being marked as different uh, or other. Um, additionally, minority identity is an entity that is both individual and collective, right? So for example, when I say um, I'm Asian American, um, I'm not simply referring to my individual identity, but, but claiming uh, membership in a larger minoritized group um, called Asian Americans. So uh, a number of scholars across different disciplines, uh, and uh, I mean, many critics come to mind, but those who play a crucial role in my book um, include Ray Chow, um, Walter Mignolo, um, anthropologists like Elizabeth Pavanelli and, and Jean and John Komaroff, um, all these critics have argued um, that uh, we need to pay attention to the relationship between identity politics and the capitalist system of, of value production. Uh, capitalism, they've argued, 
thrives uh, by producing difference uh, and otherness. Uh, so, for example, labeling populations and groups uh, that will be deemed other or inferior to uh, the dominant majority. Um, at the same time, some of this difference uh, will be converted by capitalism into value uh, that can be absorbed back into the system of exchange. Uh, so this means that while making certain identified populations uh, sort of feel different and marginalized, um, capitalism will also encourage the same populations to turn this difference into a commodity, uh, uh, whether on the domestic uh, sphere or on the, in the global marketplace. Um, it is in this sense that, that capitalism encourages identities to acquire what Marx calls uh, exchange value. Um, uh, it might help to kind of break down use value and exchange value uh, here. Let's remember that for Marx, um, use value is that property of a manufactured object that serves some human need and purpose. Um, An exchange value is uh, what allows that object to enter the market or the system of exchange uh, by being compared to uh, another commodity. So exchange value is what makes that object into a commodity. And under capitalism, exchange value is more important than use value. Uh, it doesn't matter how useful uh, a Louis Vuitton bag is, but it does matter that it's exchanged in the marketplace as a Louis Vuitton. Now, turning to minority identity, we see that this hierarchy between use value and exchange value is, is quite foundational. Uh, on the one hand, uh, identities created by a kind of devaluation um, of uh, the usefulness of the marginalized, right? So, for example, the labeling of African-Americans or non-white races more generally as being inferior to uh, those deemed white. Um, and this uh, devaluation is necessary um, for certain um uh, majoritarian ideologies to retain their sort of superior positions, right? Whether it's whiteness in colonial Europe, uh, or let's say heterosexist nationalism in, in post-colonial India. On the other hand, uh, the neoliberal logic of diversity and inclusion also invites minority subjects to continually perform their identities um, to generate, again, what Marx calls surplus value, um, or what a critic like Ray Chow has called a coercive mimeticism, where we're sort of being coerced to perform ourselves constantly. Um, this is how identity becomes readily sort of conflated with culture. Um, for example, think of Netflix rushing to offer black television in the wake of uh, George Floyd's death. So in the book, I examine how this tension between use value and exchange value, um, or as you noted in your question, uh, the tension between marginalization and inclusion um, shapes identitarian experiences in several contexts of capitalist exchange. Um, and I try to do that by analyzing a range of aesthetic and cultural texts, uh, moving from colonial France in the 40s and 50s uh, to post-colonial Algeria in the 70s, uh, to multicultural United States uh, in the 1980s, uh, to India uh, in the 21st century. Uh, and maybe to briefly return to your first question, uh, my argument then is that this tension uh, between use value and exchange value shaping identity uh, is very much a product of a capitalist mediation that involves uh, and exceeds 
mass media technologies and their sort of medium-specific properties. Um, So in the main, the book argues that identity needs to be seen as an effect of uh, mediated value production, Um, this partial and very uneven conversion of differences into values uh, through this process of mediation. Yeah, so that kind of sets up some of the main ideas that run throughout the book. So to turn to the first chapter, you look at Franz Fanon and his account of post-colonial identity, which you put in dialogue with the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. So before turning to Fanon, I think it would be helpful to unpack the key elements in Lacanian theory, particularly the ones you use around the mirror stage and the early formation of alienated subjectivity. Uh, Can you give listeners a kind of basic sense of what happens here and just some key themes that need to be borne in mind when discussing your account of Fanon? Yeah, thank you. That's uh, that's a really great question and and, and touches on the kind of main uh, theoretical framework of the book. Uh, So anti-essentialist critiques or or, um, uh, critiques of identity politics coming out of the humanities, um, especially those leaning on psychoanalysis, have often turned to um, Jacques Lacan's account of identity formation in the mirror stage. Uh, This is a well-known 1949 essay that Lacan writes um, on what he's calling the mirror stage. Um, And in this essay, Lacan argues that uh, the human child um, between the ages of, uh, I think, six and 18 months, he says, Um, learns to recognize and identify with its own image in the mirror and and develop a sense of the self, um, what uh, we could call uh, the child's ego, uh, that which says I. Uh, But this moment of recognition, Lacan argues, is also a profound misrecognition. Um, Since the child completely disavows or ignores Uh, the difference between its uh, bodily discomfort or or discord, um, a body that is quite imperfect uh, in that it's kind of fragmented uh, by the drives, it doesn't have uh, a motor coordination yet. Uh, So there's a kind of big difference between how, what the child feels uh, in its body and the perfectly smooth image that it sees in the mirror, this uh, almost this future self that the child is yet to become. And because of this misrecognition, uh, the ego, the child's ego, develops this uh, illusory sense of uh, sort of wholeness or plenitude um, for which there is no physical basis. Uh, So according to Lacan, uh, in the mirror stage, uh, the child's ego or identity is formed on the basis of this fundamental um, alienation from the self, um, uh, from, from the Uh, body of the drives, um, and a kind of denial of difference, um, the difference between the body and the image that the child sees in the mirror. Um, And although illusory, this identification with the image, or what Lacan calls imaginary identification, uh, becomes the basis of the child's um, all future social identifications. So it's important to note that what Lacan calls the mirror stage is not just a particular stage or phase but rather a structure of of mediation that uh, we repeatedly relive as uh, uh, human subjects throughout our lives uh, as social and political beings. So this imaginary sense of wholeness and plenitude stays with us 
Um, even as we enter the domain of language, or what Lacan calls the symbolic order, um, where language becomes the site of a different kind of alienation and encounter with alterity uh, that shapes us as subjects. Um, following this version, this, this 1949 account of the mirror stage, uh, a number of psychoanalytic critics have argued that what we call identity politics is also based on this fictional sense of wholeness or plenitude uh, that that begins with this kind of uh, imaginary uh, moment of imaginary alienation when uh, uh, when when we are children. Um, these critics have argued that all identities, um, including those based on race, ethnicity, gender, and sexuality, uh, are effects of this imaginary mediation and, and an illusory identification with an ideal image. Um, so that's the dominant Lacanian assessment of identity, which I draw on, but also go on to challenge and problematize in the book. Yeah, jumping right off of that, Fanon would pick up some elements of Lacanian theory, but he offered a number of twists in that he sees the split subject of Lacan as having a very particular shape under the intersections of racism, capitalism, and colonialism, meaning alienation would take very different forms depending on one's place in society, particularly with language and the way certain slang terms were often active participants in the shaping of one's identity. So can you unpack what Fanon is getting at here? Yeah, so the, the very well-known anti-colonial sort of revolutionary and psychiatrist, um, Franz Fanon, um, as you noted, uh, would borrow very sort of eclectically from um, psychoanalytic theory. Um, and, and some critics have, have pointed out that, um, you know, Fanon is quite inconsistent uh, in, in terms of what he borrows from psychoanalysis and how he reads different psychoanalytic theorists. Uh, but in the book, I'm arguing that uh, in spite of these inconsistencies, um, Fano is actually making a really important contribution to uh, psychoanalytic uh, theorizations of identity from an anti-colonial or uh, decolonial uh, perspective. Uh, more specifically, uh, I'm interested in uh, examining how Fano reads or rereads um, Lacan's early accounts of the mirror stage uh, in, in Fano's Black Skin, White Masks, um, which is his well-known treatise on anti-colonialism. Uh, so I noted earlier um, how in Lacan's uh, 1949 version of the mirror stage, um, identity is the effect of, of this imaginary misrecognition, a false sense of plenitude, etc. But Fano reads this mirror stage quite differently in the context of colonialism. Um, so Fano's writing a black skin, white masks in the context of uh, being a, a, a colonized subject in his uh, native uh, Martinique, which is an island in the West Indies colonized by the French. And uh, Fano argues that black and white subjects have, have very different experiences of identification in the mirror stage. Um, so while white subjects can easily recognize themselves in the mirror, uh, black subjects have a much harder time because of the social devaluation of blackness and black culture and, and the culture of the colonized more generally. Um, or as Fano puts it, um, for the black man, historical and economic realities must be taken into account. So the black ego, um, Fano argues, does not experience uh, imaginary plenitude or wholeness but rather an imaginary fragmentation uh, by being repeatedly made aware that black is not white or that black is inferior to white. 
Um, so visually, uh, the black ego senses uh, a, a big gap or dissonance between uh, their own black body uh, and the kind of socially idealized image of whiteness. Here, we should note a couple of things about Fano's version of the mirror stage. Uh, here, the mirror stage is not simply a child's misrecognition of itself in its mirror image, uh, but rather uh, a cultural, political, and economic process by which we form a social and uh, intersubjective sense of the self uh, in relation to those around us. Uh, and second, if in uh, Lacan's 1949 account of the mirror stage, uh, the emphasis is on the child's identification with, with the specular or a visual image or a visual form of the human body, uh, Fano alerts us to the role that, that language and emotion and affect can play in uh, uh, identification that is not necessarily just visual, but also non-visual or non-specular. Um, so for Fano, when a Black child repeatedly hears uh, derogatory things about a black, uh, black culture or Black men in colonial France, uh, these verbal assaults also contribute to identification or, or a kind of misrecognition in the nurse stage. Um, racialized language uh, becomes a crucial medium um, serving as a kind of a non-visual mirror, if you will. Um, so the child self-perception or identity here remains kind of divided or split between an awareness of their own body and the social environment that includes racially charged language as well as um, visual images. Um, I should point out here that while Fano's account of the mirror stage is quite distinct from Lacan's 1949 version, uh, Fano does come pretty close to other accounts of the mirror stage that we find, for example, in later Lacan, as well as in uh, the clinical theory of this very well-known um, French psychoanalyst, uh, Françoise Dolto, who was in fact Lacan's contemporary. She was very well-known in France, but not as popular among North American cultural critics uh, who are using psychoanalytic theory. So uh, all this to say that when I turn to Fano to offer an anti-colonial account of identity production, uh, I'm not dismissing psychoanalytic theory, but bringing Fano into conversation with psychoanalytic accounts that have been ignored uh, by dominant uh, psychoanalytic critics uh, of identity in the North American humanities. Yeah, moving right along, one of the key forms of media in this chapter you analyze uh, was the radio, which played a number of very strange and unique roles in Fanon's Algeria throughout the Algerian Revolution. You argue that there are a couple layers to the formation of identity regarding radio for the Algerians under colonial occupation, since it at times produced a split identity we've been Discussing, but that there were also the possibilities of misinterpretation and misinterpolation, which could create new solidarities of resistance, not in spite of, but because of the radio transmissions Algerians were hearing. So can you unpack what you see going on here? Yes. So it might help to uh, return to uh, what I began with, uh, uh, the, the way, the manner in which I was describing the concept of mediation at work in the book, uh, that by mediation, I mean uh, the, the kind of intercession that capitalism stages 
both using mass media technologies, uh, but not limiting itself to the properties of those technologies. Uh, So the role of radio in anti-colonial Algeria needs to be examined both through the specificity of radio as uh, a mass medium, um, uh, as well as an instrument of uh, French cultural imperialism that drives the introduction of radio in Algeria. Uh, Fano, although born in Martinique, was an active participant uh, in the Algerian revolution and the Algerian fight for independence from the French. Um, And in his book, uh, Dying Colonialism, um, he notes how Algerians at first uh, reject the radio as a technology because it it is uh, associated with the colonizer. Um, The radio is associated with French broadcasts that are meant for expats in Algeria uh, who want to be reminded of their connections with the homeland, of their Frenchness, and so on. Um, And so from the Algerian perspective, radio initially is is strictly anti-Algerian. It represents or communicates, uh, again, to go back to uh, the psychoanalytic uh, terminology, a kind of ideal image of Frenchness um, with which Algerians are unable to identify. Right, So that's the beginning of a kind of fragmentation that Fano is referring to. But that situation changes once Algerians uh, begin their own anti-colonial broadcasts in Arabic and French, um, especially the broadcast called uh, The Voice of Fighting Algeria that was launched in, uh, I believe, 1956. So in Dying Colonialism, um, Fano describes this remarkable scene where uh, the Algerians are listening to The Voice of Fighting Algeria at the station Um, with their ears glued to the radio set. Um, And and Fano calls this act of listening a battle of the airwaves um, because the Algerians have to frequently change the broadcast wavelength to dodge and fight uh, the French efforts to jam these broadcasts. Um, So what's fascinating here in this account of uh, uh, reception is the ambiguous status of radio in in Algerian anti-colonialism. On the one hand, Uh, Radio is seen as a weapon of colonization, upholding French uh, whiteness as value. On the other hand, the radio broadcasts in French and Arabic also become a means of uh, asserting a kind of fictional um, Algerian identity uh, as a competing value uh, that is both drawing on, uh, but also trying to resist uh, the colonial capitalist logic of whiteness. Uh, Now, uh, Let's note that I called uh, this identity fictional. Um, It's fictional because it doesn't exist at this time uh, except as a kind of mental and an affective construct uh, created through mass media like the radio. Um, In fact, Fano points out that that when Algerians uh, hear these anti-colonial messages on the radio, or what he calls the kind of voice of the fatherland, uh, they often he- what, they, what they were actually hearing is often a kind of meaningless, active, crackling or static noise of the radio. Uh, and and uh, it's a remarkable moment uh, because in that politically charged context of anti-colonial resistance, Um, Even that crackle uh, can be construed or or misconstrued or misrecognized as the voice of the fatherland. Um, So you can, again, see a kind of echo of uh, Lacan here, the kind of misrecognition that that we see in the Nur stage. Um, But Fano goes further. He says that not only do the Algerians listen to this meaningless voice, but they also absorb it 
um, into their bodies and, and become these broadcasters of this anti-colonial message uh, that's that's uh, founded or premised on this meaningless crackle. Uh, so Algerian nationalism is founded in part on this active misinterpretation of the noise of the radio, or, or noise is a kind of uh, acoustic mirror, if you will. Uh, so this is another example in my book um, of uh, what I'm calling the intermediality of identity, right? That identity is split between media. Um, and um, as I tried to just outline for you, um, Algerian identity here is split between both the radio as, as uh, a kind of uh, instrument of mediation, um, as well as the colonized body uh, that serves as another uh, crucial agent of mass mediation. Yeah, moving along to the next chapter, you turn to Teresa Hak-kyung Cha's work, Dikte, an experimental text that synthesizes prose, poetry, and visual imagery to depict or create a particular subject. So let's start by speaking about uh, some of the language employed, which you argue both defamiliarizes the familiar uh, and also at times exists as a sort of linguistic means of revolting against the interpolative structure, to borrow your phrase. Uh, can you give us a sense of what you see Cha doing with language here and how it serves to articulate the very particular experience of being an Asian American? Mm-hmm. So in this chapter, um, uh, I'm arguing that like Fano, uh, the Korean American artist and author uh, Teresa Hakyun Cha um, is thinking of language as one medium among others that shapes identity under racialized capitalism. So if Fano was thinking of anti-colonial identity in colonial France, um, Cha's dicte reflects on um, Asian American identity, but also I'd say identity production more broadly um, under racial capitalism uh, in the US. Um, but as your question uh, already notes, um, the politics of language in dicta is quite complex. Um, so on the one hand, Cha draws on um, avant-garde techniques, um, specifically uh, language poetry that emerges in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s, um, to focus on uh, a kind of materiality or, or material specificity of language um, outside of uh, meaning and communication. Uh, so this experimental approach is, is part of revealing that side of language um, that we don't see or hear in our everyday use. Um, so that's part of making the familiar unfamiliar or what you, what you described as uh, defamiliarizing the familiar. Um, on the other hand, much of dicte is uh, preoccupied with the effects of colonialism and, and neocolonialism on language. Um, so language serving as a, as a site of cultural imperialism as well as anti-colonial nationalism, um, where the experience of language is, again, inseparable from colonial oppression and the nationalist sentiments um, that this oppression generates. So what's fascinating about Cha's text is the manner in which it asks us to see uh, literary and uh, aesthetic cultures in the U.S. more broadly has been constituted by both these approaches to language, uh, uh, the ethnic identitarian approach, as well as the avant-garde or the non-identitarian approach. Um, uh, more specifically, I read Cha's text to argue that what, what Dicte makes clear um, is that these seemingly oppositional modes of language are in fact intimately connected. 
um, in that they both originate in, in the violence of the commodity form and uh, exchange value and uh, the universal equivalent. Um, I should know here that while there is a voice in the text that we might call Asian American or Korean American, um, Dicte isn't just an account in my reading of uh, just Asian American identity. Uh, it actually explicitly refuses to offer uh, an essential or a singular account of Asian Americanness. Uh, Cha's text, I think, is is more interested in linking multiple contexts of identity production. Um, so specifically, uh, the anti-colonial and post-war context in Korea to uh, the multicultural context uh, of the United States. In Another element of the novel is visual imagery, which you argue serves a very particular purpose, that of destabilizing our sense of what it might be referring to. This would seem to be quite counterintuitive since photographs seem to generally be of a particular thing. So how do the visuals in Cha's work here serve this destabilizing purpose? And what is the purpose of this destabilizing, this destabilization in the work? Right. So um, I, I described Cha's text a moment ago as this experimental work um, where identities represented as something that is mediated by language as well as the image um, under racialized capitalism. Uh, interestingly, the, the photographs uh, that Chai includes in her text um, are often without any descriptions, titles, or context. Um, so the reader has no ready description at hand to interpret the image. Um, this absence of context or additional information um, has led many critics to argue that uh, Chai is not interested in questions of identity or uh, what in the context of uh, photographs, we might say kind of photographic referentiality, an interest in kind of understanding or fixing the reference uh, 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 to the images that we are seeing. But uh, I argue that the, the destabilization that you're referring to happens not because the images don't refer to a particular person or a thing, but rather the reader has to that the reader has to labor to decode the significance of the image uh, and pay attention to several details in the image um, that a predetermined caption would otherwise ignore or, or severely limit. Uh, so in my reading of Dicte, I, I focus in particular on images uh, from uh, the Japanese occupation of Korea uh, to argue that by, by withholding information about these images, um, Cha is actually inviting us to read uh, the identity of the reference um, uh, of the individuals that we are seeing in the images, um, not merely through what we can see, but rather through what lies beyond the image. Um, so the sociopolitical conditions and, and specifically the colonial violence that makes the image possible, but remains uh, either partially visible or invisible in the image itself. Um, so there's a kind of interpretive work that we have to do as readers um, when we are confronted with the image. Uh, and that allows us to think of identity uh, in, in, in and through the kind of multiple mediations that, that I'm referring to. So in short, uh, Cha invites us to read identity or the identities of the photographed referent uh, through the violence of colonial capitalism that is 
at once visible uh, and, and not entirely visible in the image. Finally, I want to ask about this novel's relationship to academia and the avant-garde. The novel is one of the central texts in the history of what's often called Asian American studies, and so occupies a central place in much contemporary academic study. This, in a way, runs counter to its avant-garde style, which is a movement that naturally tends to oppose being studied in a typical academic way. So there would seem to be a tension between being avant-garde and being so central to academia, but you argue that this tension not only can tell us about the novel's place in these various currents and institutions, but may actually be a tension the novel is itself curiously aware of. So can you unpack what you see going on here and what this tension or contradiction might tell us about Asian American identity? Yeah, so I was actually yeah alluding to this tension um, while mentioning the the complexity of uh, the literary linguistic politics of dicte. Um, so roughly the first half of Cha's text concerns itself with matters of anti-colonial nationalism and linguistic nationalism, uh, uh, anti-colonial violence, and so on. Um, and roughly the second half of the text uh, seems to be inspired by, uh, as I mentioned, avant-garde language poetry that focuses not on linguistic meaning, but language as an experience in and of itself, uh, the materiality of language, uh, not reliant on meaning, uh, or referentiality that is imposed on it uh, by, by social uses. Uh, so because of this tension uh, between the two modes of writing, uh, or two modes of poetry, one might say, um, Cha's text has been read in, in different ways. Um, Asian American critics have focused on the issues of identity, race, and ethnicity uh, brought up by the text, the first half, um, and uh, critics privileging the avant-garde um, have argued that Cha actively resists or, or resolves um, issues of identity and ethnicity uh, through this kind of non-referential turn to language in the second half of the text. But um, I take a, a different approach, and, and I agree, argue that uh, this uh, unresolved tension between the ethnic and the avant-garde is deliberately staged in the text. Uh, to uh, give us a sense of the competing uh, modes of aesthetic production that racialized capitalism uh, makes possible. So there's almost a kind of allegorical function um, of this in the text. Um, so both identity politics, um, Asian American as well as other ethnic minority identities, um, and the subversion of identity through anti-identitarian language poetry um, may seem ideologically opposed, uh, but they're in fact distinct cultural manifestations of the capitalist or neoliberal transformation of difference into value. Uh, in fact, this is what I'm calling um, the cunning of capital in the book. Um, uh, capitalism's ability to produce identity by aesthetic uh, or cultural means and simultaneously um, offer an aesthetic solution uh, to uh, the problem of identity politics or the violence of identity politics. Um, so in my reading, uh, what Dicte does very effectively um, and, and what has been ignored in, in uh, uh, dominant inter interpretations of the text um, is this exposition, um, uh, Dicte's uh, sort of laying bare um, of the cunning of capital. 
turning back to Algeria, but sometime after Fanon, you look at Asia Debar's film, The Nooba of the Women of Mount Chenua. Central to your reading of this film is what is often referred to as haptic cinema, a film style that not only produces a certain aesthetic result, but functions at a deeper level in how it shapes the characters and narrative. Can you give us a sense of what haptic cinema is and what it's doing here? Yes. Uh, So the term haptic cinema comes from uh, film theorist uh, Laura Marx. uh, And uh, Marx, Laura Marx argues that uh, uh, the mode of uh, visual representation that capitalism most frequently deploys uh, is uh, uh, what she calls optical visuality, uh, by which Marx means uh, a mode of looking or a mode of vision where an object uh, is reduced to a consumable sign. Um, So in optical visuality, uh, the viewer is seen as this kind of powerful subject uh, who has complete optical control and knowledge of of the object uh, that is being viewed. Um, And that's the mode of vision that colonial and post-colonial capitalism um, deploy and encourage and cultivate. Uh, So that's optical visuality. Uh, In contrast, uh, haptic vision, uh, Marx argues, is that anti-capitalist mode of vision, we might say, that does not so much seek to possess or or penetrate uh, the object um, as as a kind of graze on its surface. Um, So rather than seeking to own the image, which is what optical visuality does, haptic visuality produces a kind of tactile intimacy with the image. Uh, So it's a kind of aesthetic gesture that uh, seeks to um, undermine or undo the the hierarchy between uh, the viewing subject and the viewed object. So undo this kind of subject-object dichotomy. Uh, Notably for Marx, um, haptic cinema is associated with uh, a politics of uh, anti-identitarianism or a kind of aesthetic anti-essentialism that cinema alone can produce, um, precisely because uh, the viewing subject here uh, attempts, uh, uh, I guess metaphorically speaking, a kind of dissolution into or a kind of commingling with uh, the object that is being viewed. So in my reading of Asya Jabbar's film, uh, The Nuba of the the Women of Mount Chinua, I'm interested in the way that Jabbar uses uh, cinema to to similarly deploy uh, haptic aesthetics. Um, There are several scenes where the spectator is encouraged to cultivate this intimate and and sensory relationship with the image uh, to see representations of Algeria uh, and Algerian women um, without occupying uh, a position of mastery. but uh, this, this haptic aesthetics in Jabbar, in my reading, is not a solution to the violence of identity politics, as Marx suggests. Um, in fact, haptic aesthetics, uh, uh, I suggest, uh, creates uh, the conditions for reflecting on uh, the, the kind of gendered violence or the mediations of gendered violence that uh, create uh, feminine identity in post-colonial Algeria. Um, So I go so far as to suggest that Jabbar uses haptic aesthetics to evoke a a tactile power of moving images 
that in fact evoke uh, a kind of unrepresentable trauma uh, uh, from identitarian violence. So if, if Marx, Laura Marx sees haptic aesthetics as a solution to identity politics, um, I argue that Jabbar is asking us to understand uh, the multiple mediations of identity through a kind of haptic cinema. Another theme you bring up regarding this film is the question of gender, particularly as it relates to post-colonial politics. Oftentimes, anti-colonial struggle will rely on some very deeply gendered ideology to make their case for the importance of emancipation, with a sort of pure or organic form of local masculinity and femininity being threatened by colonialism, which can create a host of new problems even in the wake of emancipation. And you argue the film is wrestling with this to some degree. So can you unpack what you see going on here? Sure. Uh, So Jabbar's film uh, is a very sort of clear, strong refusal of uh, precisely that uh, masculinist ideology uh, behind popular Algerian nationalism. And uh, like a lot of other nationalisms, uh, Algerian nationalism has been primarily told or narrated uh, from uh, the male point of view, and especially through Algerian cinema. in contrast, uh, Jabbar's film is, is very invested uh, in carving out a kind of feminist uh, retelling of the Algerian revolution um, and, and thinking through the kind of active role that women played in the war. Um, at the same time, though, the, the film does not uh, depict feminine identity as, as some autonomous entity that is independent of uh, the gender dimensions uh, of racialized capitalism that that uh, take root in post-colonial Algeria. Uh, in fact, feminine identity in the film uh, reveals itself again to be this multiply mediated entity that takes stock of the cost of colonial and post-colonial mediations of capitalist violence, um, in which uh, gender um, or uh, the kind of hierarchical division of the sexes uh, plays a fundamental role. So Jabbar's film also grapples with class hierarchies um, that make uh, the feminine uh, identity and experience extremely um, heterogeneous uh, in the post-colonial Algerian context. Uh, Finally, uh, I'd say that I'm also interested in the film's turn to um, Algerian culture and oral culture and a politics of uh, collective orality or collective voicing. the feminine fragment or the fragmentation of female identity in the Nuba um, remains split uh, between a uh, struggle against uh, the colonial patriarchal law um, and uh, uh, almost kind of ethical responsibility to, to hear the speech of, of the Algerian women who have been excluded um, from uh, the patriarchal version of nationalism and anti-colonialism. On top of all this, one thing to bear in mind is the fact that the Algerian film industry has been nationalized, which means that much of the gendered ideology we've been discussing has been been tied in a certain way to Algerian identity and citizenship. What does this fact tell us about the relationship between gender identity narrative, national mythology, and film and art more broadly? And how does this enrich and complicate our understanding of Jabbar's work here? 
Uh, right. So maybe I'll say a couple of things more about the film here. Yeah. So what you're referring to uh, has been called the project of Arabization in, in post-colonial Algeria. Uh, right after Algeria's independence from the French and, and from the 1960s onward, uh, the Algerian government undertook uh, an especially aggressive and orthodox program of Arabization that, that aimed to undo, but also mimic um, the colonial logic of, uh, of Frenchification or sort of upholding Frenchness um, and uh, the consequent uh, minoritization of other cultures and languages. So giving Arabic the status of French uh, meant identifying Algeria's non-Arab inhabitants and especially the native uh, Berber population um, as outsiders. Uh, and Jabbar, for her film, uh, interviews many Berber women, uh, many of whom are, are her own relatives. Uh, so unsurprisingly, the, the call for Arabization um, also meant uh, tightening uh, the kind of patriarchal control or grip um, over the post-colonial state. Uh, the, the 1984 uh, family code is kind of draconian example of that, um, that uh, uh, this law that severely curtailed women's rights, uh, legalized patriarchal control over divorce, reproduction, and, and even the right to adopt. Um, so it's pretty remarkable that Jabbar's film, which is made in the late 1970s, um, anticipates and, and critiques these developments to come. Um, ironically, the, the film was uh, made with funding from the state-owned uh, uh, Algerian radio and television broadcasting. Uh, and again, unsurprisingly, this, this station showed the film only once. Uh, and there were even reports of male filmmakers um, blocking the wider exhibition of the film because they were uh, upset with Jabbar's uh, retelling of uh, the revolution. Uh, and that kind of censorship uh, is, of course, still quite relevant and prevalent. And that makes it all the more urgent uh, to return to Jabbar's film and, and reassess its relevance in the context of identity politics today. In the last chapter, you turn to the Indian LGBTQ film festival Kashish, which is hosted in Mumbai every year. I think we should kick things off here by asking about what you call the homo-global orientation on display at the festival. You write, quote, the homo-global is a regime where queerness as a form of neoliberal transnationalism appears to have overcome homo-nationalism, racism, imperialism, and class divides. It equates queerness not just with same-sex desire or gender nonconformity, but more implicitly with a certain kind of mobility, global exposure, access to technology, and spending power, end quote. So can you unpack homoglobality here and how it seems to be the underlying orientation of Kashish? Sure. Uh, so in, in my discussion of contemporary queer politics uh, in India in the last chapter, I developed this um, concept of the homoglobal um, in dialogue with uh, Jasby Poir's um, well-known concept of homo-nationalism um, that, that she lays out in that, that very well-known book, um, Terrorist Assemblages. Um, as you and your listeners might know, for Poir, uh, homo-nationalism is that uh, neoliberal uh, representational regime 
where the once marginalized or minoritized homosexual subject um, has been somewhat precariously and, and temporarily included within the folds of the heterosexist nation, right? So the homonational subject is one who is allowed to be queer as long as they are nationalist uh, uh, and are fully in agreement with the racism and sexism um, that frequently uh, sort of underpins uh, the nation form. And Poir has talked about the rise of homonationalism in, in distinct uh, settler colonial contexts like post 9-11 America and contemporary Israel. Um, in contrast, homoglobalism, um, I'm suggesting, is a, a different representational maneuver that attempts to disavow of the homonationalism uh, by suggesting that the homosexual subject is in fact a transnational and global citizen who is easily able to move beyond national interests. Um, and in the homoglobal regime, homosexuality is equated with a certain kind of liberal um, cosmopolitanism, transborder travel, intercultural alliances, etc. So what the homoglobal regime uh, hides or elides uh, is not just that uh, is not just the homonationalism that that remains uh, uh, at work underneath it or, or alongside it, but also the class privilege and the financial and cultural capital that allows certain queer subjects to participate in these images of uh, queer cosmopolitanism. So homo homoglobalism is is a particular. Uh, kind of uh, emergent uh, neoliberal cosmopolitanism. Uh, Kashish, as I note in the book, uh, is the biggest, or at least one of the biggest, uh, LGBTQ plus film festivals in South Asia. And I'm interested in the festival um, as an important site of queer identity production or construction uh, through cinema or visual culture um, in the post-colonial Indian context. And uh, in my argument, or at least uh, part of my argument, is that the festival is forced to participate in or, or perform a kind of homoglobalism uh, because it's a beneficiary of transnational flows of capital uh, in, in a neoliberal world. Uh, in other words, um, the festival has to conform to this rhetoric of queerness as a global and cosmopolitan alliance um, because of the support it receives uh, from, let's say, the Canadian and U.S. governments, U.S. tech companies and uh, media companies. Um, these partnerships have required the festival to mold its uh, self-image or its brand uh, in accordance with this kind of dominant international rhetoric of queer rights and visibility, one that is often at odds uh, or at a remove from the realities of queer lives in contemporary India. Yeah, jumping right off of that into my next question, one important thing to understand about your account of homoglobality here is the way it stands at the intersection of some very particularly Indian approaches to gender and identity. So, for example, you talk a lot about hijras, um, and there's a way in which these have often clashed against or been co-opted by India's attempt to join the neoliberal world market producing a queer community that is often trying to simultaneously be internationally cosmopolitan while also maintaining its connections to something particularly Indian. 
So can you unpack this intersection and the resulting tensions throughout India's queer community or communities here? Right. So what I track in the chapter on Kashish is um, this dissonance between the so-called universal and global images of queerness, um, one which, in which uh, all queer identities, regardless of you know, how and where they originate, are, are seemingly equal. Um, so the dissonance between that kind of universality and the inequalities that have uh, historically shaped uh, and continue to linger in uh, Indian queer politics. Um, so you mentioned the Hijra community. Um, as a number of queer scholars have uh, noted, the term Hijra can only be very loosely and uh, imperfectly translated um, as transgender. Um, because this South Asian identity is intimately bound up with multiple forms of mediation that uh, include, for instance, colonial British colonial law, um, Hindu or Muslim religious practices, uh, developmental aid in post-liberalization India, and uh, even contemporary media cultures. Um, also, historically, because of their lower class position, Hijras uh, have also been initially excluded from queer activism in India, uh, a movement that was initially, at least in the 90s, uh, led by urban and often middle class or upper middle class gay and lesbian activists. Uh, while these inequalities have not remained static, uh, they also make it impossible to think of all queer identities in India uh, to be sharing a level playing field, um, um, uh, either domestically or on the uh, transnational or global stage. Uh, and I should note here that, that Kashish is a critical site for me because of the contradictions uh, that it lays bare through its um, self-presentation and its uh, kind of curatorial politics. Um, so on the one hand, as I noted earlier, the festival celebrates uh, the homo-global and neoliberal logic of queer inclusion, and this often happens most frequently through its publicity, advertising, uh, sidebar events at the festival involving its sponsors, etc. On the other hand, uh, the films curated by the festival uh, frequently reveal the, the multiple mediations producing the asymmetries between queer identities in post-colonial India. And I analyzed several such films in the last chapter, and these are films that are made mostly by independent activists uh, and or student filmmakers. So uh, when I'm analyzing the Kashish Film Festival, it's important to bear in mind that I'm not looking at just the, the homo-global logic, but also this dissonance that is articulated through the films um, screened at the festival. Yeah, jumping right off of that, you do look at quite a few different films, but the one I think that kind of really drives a lot of these points home really well for you is Goddess, a film about a queer woman working as a live-in housekeeper. The film is mostly set in the house where she lives and works, and so the house becomes a place where her identity is created and then fragmented, as it's the place where she is simultaneously a queer woman with certain desires, but also a worker with material needs. And the clash between these produced some key conflicts for her. So can you unpack what you see happening in this film and how it depicts some of the tensions we've been uh, uh, developing so far? 
Yeah, thanks for bringing up Goddess. Um, Goddess, or, or Devi in Hindi, um, is a remarkable short film uh, made by Karishma Dubey, uh, who's actually, a, I think, currently a film student uh, at Tisch, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but And if I'm remembering correctly, I, I saw the film at Kashish in 2017, um, and as you noted, the, the film is about two young women, uh, one of whom is employed as a live-in uh, domestic worker in an affluent Indian household, uh, and the other woman is the employer's daughter. Uh, so it's a simple, and, or apparently simple, and short story. Um, the two women develop a sexually intimate relationship. Uh, the employer or uh, the mother of one of the women uh, uh, finds out and, and berates them, and the domestic worker is uh, promptly fired and, and replaced. Um, so that's that's the plot in a nutshell. But what's really powerful is the manner in which uh, Dubey cinematically draws our attention to the class divide between the two women, uh, the precarious status of, of Devi, the domestic worker um, in the heteronormative household. Um, so at one level, uh, the filmmaker creates this space of desire between the two women, uh, a queer gaze, if you like, um, through which we um, as spectators are encouraged to uh, isolate, uh, kind of reify erotic desire, um, sort of filter it out uh, of structural and material inequalities. Um, on another level, though, um, the film also aesthetically alerts us um, to uh, the domestic worker Davies' uh, lower class status, um, the undervalued nature of her labor, um, and ultimately uh, the, the replaceable nature of that labor, uh, the expendable nature of that labor. Uh, one of the most poignant markers of Davies' identity or, or precarious position in the household um, is the sound associated with her labor. Um, she is frequently heard, uh, or we hear the sound of uh, uh, a Davy wringing water out of a rag um, that she uses to uh, mop the floor with. Um, and at one point in the film, the camera lingers on Davy, uh, wringing that water out of the rag, uh, but the lighting is such that we don't really see her. Um, all that we hear is the sound. Um, and at the end of the film, the morning after the, the two women's relationship has been discovered by the mother, um, uh, we hear the same sound. Um, but we realize that, that the woman ringing the rag is a new domestic worker. And that's the moment we realize that Davy has been quietly replaced. It's the sound of, her, of that labor that alerts us to this eviction and absence. Um, so I choose this film because of the way in which it represents the, the splitting of queer identity. Uh, in Dubé's film, uh, queer identity remains split between uh, a kind of cinematically mediated space of erotic desire uh, and the deeply unequal uh, regime of labor um, that characterizes uh, this urban Indian household uh, and by extension, uh, the uh, contemporary neoliberal India. Uh, and this critical assessment of identity is starkly at odds with the homoglobal rhetoric of Kashish that you see in its advertising and publicity. In the concluding chapter, you discuss a good number of things, but the one I wanted to ask about in closing is where you discuss the question of intellectual production and the way intellectual products are produced under certain conditions that affect the final form they take. 
Of particular interest here is the way supposedly subversive or avant-garde disciplines have found themselves to be intellectual staples of many major neoliberal universities. Uh, And this book itself is published by Northwestern University Press. So I think you're kind of engaging in some, you know, very reflective self-critique here. Um, So I'm wondering if in closing, you could tell us what this may say about the potentially compromised nature of much contemporary academia and how we ought to reorient ourselves to be more critical of some academic disciplines and their output. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it might be useful to return to uh, uh, this idea of the cunning of capital uh, that is central to the book. Um, what the book calls out, uh, as I noted earlier, is is capitalism's cunning ability to promote uh, culture uh, or aesthetics um, as both identitarian and anti-identitarian solutions to its own oppressive effects, right? So we, we are trying to, uh, it, both within and beyond academia, uh, trying to uh, present uh, identity politics and anti-identity politics as solutions to uh, the, the problems created by capitalism. Um, this cunning, uh, the book argues, has affected uh, North American academia uh, as well, um, where you have, uh, on the one hand, the institutionalization and culturalization of identity-based fields, uh, let's say from ethnic studies to queer studies, uh, to uh, uh, the, the kind of ethnicity-based field, whether it's African-American studies or, or, or Asian-American studies. Um, but on the other hand, you also have the institutionalization of anti-identitarian and avant-garde aesthetics that, that have acquired a certain amount of cultural capital. Um, the, the avant-gardism, this avant-gardism in the humanities in particular, um, often relies on privileging a particular aesthetic medium and its medium-specific properties. Um, so throughout the book, I examine different manifestations of this tendency in the humanities, uh, in literary studies, film studies, and queer studies, to name just three fields. Um, in literary studies, a certain strand of post-structuralist thinking has argued that it's possible to move past identity politics by uh, immersing oneself in, in the kind of absolute alterity of language. Uh, in film studies, a certain strand of film theory has argued that immersing oneself in, in the tactile properties of cinema can offer an alternative to our identitarian attachments. Um, so all these medium-bound alternatives to identity, I'm arguing, fail to take into account the fact that identity is produced between media or intermediately, or through the intermediality of racialized capitalism. So what I end the book with is a kind of plea uh, for a more rigorous uh, interdisciplinarity, um, where as scholars of the humanities, uh, we look beyond our disciplines and our discipline-bound investments in particular media. And, and here we think critically about interdisciplinarity itself, because that has also become uh, a neoliberal buzzword. So, so no aesthetic or technological medium can save us from the violence of identity politics. No one medium can save us. Um, what kind of interdisciplinarity can we forge based on this realization? Uh, that's the, I guess, the pessimistically optimistic question with which I end the book. 
Yeah, so jumping right off of that, uh, we always like to ask uh, at the end what uh, our guests are working on now, if anything, and I'm sure you'll have some answer that kind of jumps right off of that. So do you have any new projects in the work, any new directions you're going in? Yeah, well, right now, I think I'm going to take a break from writing um, because um, I need to uh, sort of think more about uh, the two projects that I'm currently working on. Uh, conceptualizing. Um, one is um, a project on queer cinema and cosmopolitanism, and that comes out of, I guess, sort of builds on the last chapter. So thinking critically about uh, the possibilities of uh, queer cinema or cinema's ability to think about queerness beyond identity politics, um, but taking into account uh, the, the various sort of structural processes that put these identities into place, um, whether it's uh, sort of immigration law or uh, sort of domestic contexts of repression, political and social. Uh, so thinking about global uh, queer art cinema uh, that is in, in, in kind of in conversation with um, uh, feminist and Marxist approaches to um, uh, queer modes of living, let's say, um, that that move beyond identity politics, but also look at the violence of identity construction. And the second project um, uh, is geopolitically more specific, um, thinking about uh, the representations of caste and, and, and casteist violence in uh, Indian cinemas. Uh, so that that's, that's a newer and more uh, uh, sort of... Uh, a project that for which I need to do a lot of new research, uh, but I'm really excited about both. Yeah, those both sound excellent and like they'll kind of develop a lot of what you do in parts of this book. So Ani Maitra, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a sure and wonderful pleasure.